0: Welcome to Digital Oxford. I'm Anne Fethen. I'm Pro Vice-Chancellor of People and Digital at the University of Oxford. In this podcast series, we will be exploring and discovering how new technologies and digital innovation are shaping our future and the role that Oxford University is playing along the way. So I'm delighted today to be joined uh, by my friend and colleague, Sir Nigel Shabbolt who is the principal of Jesus College and is a professor in the computer science department and has been working in the area of artificial intelligence for as long as I've known, in which I hesitate to say is over 20 years, Nigel. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your experience as a potentially a young researcher in Mm, AI those mm, years mm, ago, mm. and um, the journey that you've taken as it has taken.
1: Well, fantastic. It's great to be here, Anne, and and lovely to be talking with you. Um, Look, I mean, it is a terrifying thought to look back with quite so many uh, years under the belt now in AI. I remember when I went up to begin my PhD in Artificial Intelligence in the Department of Artificial Intelligence, In 1978. So uh, that (laughs) gives you an idea of how long in the tooth uh, this particular um, AI researcher is. It has given me um, a really quite uh, wonderful um, uh, sense of the development of this subject, which was already, you know, 30 odd years old uh, at the point at which I entered it, in the sense that people have been talking about machine intelligence, Turing's. the father of computer science in so many respects, his wonderful early work on the fundamentals of computability, then his realisation of some of these ideas in cryptography in Bletchley Park, Um, his wonderful paper in the philosophy journal Mind on uh, Machine Intelligence, where he coined the famous imitation game that came to be known as the Turing Test. He was imagining, even when he was working on the Manchester Mark I, the so-called baby, which was this... um, um, programmable machine where your interface was the cathode ray tube effectively uh he was imagining this inevitable speed of compute and compute power and what that might ultimately lead to in terms of our understanding of our own uh, selves and of intelligence and what constructs we built so it's been an extraordinary journey um i would observe a few things is when i (laughs) I've seen a few winters and summers of AI enthusiasm. Um, back in 1978, we were still still pretty chilly. They were busy trying to close the uh, department down in Edinburgh because following a, a review by Sir James Lighthill, who at the time was the Lucasian Professor of Mathematics from Cambridge, he thought the whole idea was preposterous. And um, I think there was, uh, there was some real uh, personality conflicts in the field at the time as well, um, I never managed to kind of survive by the skin of its teeth. And um, I took my PhD there. And as I was doing my postdoc work, um, uh, we began to see the glimmers of a thawing. And that really happened in the mid 80s. In particular, um, the Alvi program was a UK funding initiative that was actually driven by a fear that the Japanese were going to build advanced robotics that would clean up in manufacturing or super smart computers that would out. Paces at everything we did. So huge investments, lots of um, systems forthcoming. This was the year of what we called knowledge-based or expert systems. And back then, we were talking about their impacts in education, in manufacturing, in design. So AI has been making inroads, been extending both the methods it uses and the power it has at its disposal year on year. And at a particular period, you can see that the thing in the ascendance is expert systems or logic-based theorem proving or an approach that looks at how animals are built and their nervous systems constructed, so-called biologically inspired robotics, and then back to an approach that took the web and all the data on it and thought about building an AI web of data. And to our, our most recent enthusiasm around so-called generative AI, which is to ingest all of that data on the web and use modern machine learning methods to to generate new content. So it has been an extraordinary journey, and I've been privileged to be part of that and also to experience it from different disciplinary perspectives.
0: Great. Thank you. So you, you mentioned the... Um, the um, role of data and is it the case really that some of those algorithms that you talked about being developed in the 40s 50s really came into their own because we suddenly had the amounts of data that allowed them to really take on and it's not as much just about the algorithm but about the data that you're feeding in is that really the case
1: i think it's a great point um in fact i remember um in, uh, my early years in the subject, that data was the real bottleneck. You just didn't have it. It was very expensive to acquire. um, And uh, there were plenty of machine learning methods around. But, for example, to build them, you had to, first of all, build your corpus of training data. Uh, And that applied in everything from computational linguistics to vision to robotics. And I think what's happened with the web what's happened in an era, era of big data, what's happened in an era when every kind of a scientific device is streaming huge amounts of, of data itself, is we've had this explosion, and we've been able to use traditional and new methods to find patterns and correlations and sometimes causations in all of that data. It's introduced a whole new set of problems, of course, and not least problems around do we trust the data? How representative is it? Do you need anything but data? I mean, there's even a, a strain of thought that says, you know, um, uh, the data is its own best model. What does that do to the theoretical enterprise? Exactly. Uh,
0: yeah. Do we really need the Navier Stokes to be able to predict the weather?
1: <laughs> I, I, so, so that, And that's a really interesting interplay between how we will do and modify the scientific method. Go going forward. I'm absolutely convinced that we will always be a data driven and a theory driven uh, um, uh, set of practitioners. Great. So
0: we can imagine. Well, we're told by the newspapers and everybody that AI at this point in time is going to affect everything that we do in the household, mm. in as a consumer, um, in higher education, impacting our teaching. Research can you say do you, is that realistic or are we really overplaying the importance of AI?
1: Well, I'd also say that it has been doing this for some considerable time anyway. I mean um, let's think about where AI is routinely used, um, whether it's on our phones or in our laptops or the systems we interact with um, at work and at play. Um, face recognition, voice recognition, intelligent route finding all the product of, of AI algorithms, or the use of advanced gaming engines in um, in esports and all sorts of uh, 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 digital game contexts, or the use in image recognition, or unfortunately, of course, in in, in weaponry, you know, the, the, the software that's deployed in, in advanced um, cruise missiles, for example, or, or uh, automatic uh, aviation support in... Uh, in fighters and weapon platforms of all sorts, so we've we've had this world in which AI is being suffused for some time. I think what has happened with generative AI is there's something very dramatic. I think about what happens when you're suddenly having a an apparently connected extended conversation with a program. Um, we've we've kind of been there before. At least some people have. I remember Gary Kasparov when he was beaten by Deep Blue in the late '90s. Mm. Said at the time, he said he played a lot of chess computers but this one was different. He smelt a new kind of intelligence across the table. In fact, what Dibli was doing was about three to 400 million searches a second, yes. um, uh, uh, gain positions a second, um, but it unnerved him. And he, he he accorded to the system powers and capabilities that weren't there in a way, but nevertheless, the impression was, was very dramatic. So I think that our generative systems, they do have extraordinary capacities. And as they talk back to us, we imagine there are... In some sense, minds behind the screens, or dispositions, or friends you can make, or tutors you can trust. And what we have really is an echo back of our amassed knowledge represented in coherent, sensible formats – So that will change. That will change how we interact. And it's going to change partly because these products are going to be deployed into stuff we all use, whether it's Mm. Microsoft's tools with the co-pilot, this interesting idea, which I think is, is a good way to present it, that a little AI in all the tools you routinely use can amplify and augment what you do, whether it's helping you understand a database or a spreadsheet. These tools can help you organise and, and, and present um, intelligent analysis back. For the student, the experience is going to be, in a sense, um, a tutor on hand. A tutor on hand, really, not quite in the way we do tutorials here in Oxford, of course not. But there'll be augmented access to information, different points of view, possible critiquing, possible summarization, linking literatures together. Um, used in the right way, these tools can really amplify what we do. And I think the trick will be to develop guidance, expectations, protocols, where we know what we're dealing with. So when we're reading some content, we know it's AI generated. I think when we deal with any AI going forward, one of the fundamental principles is going to be a thing should say what it is and be what it says so that we're not in some sense living Mm -hmm. in a world where we can't make that distinction.
0: Yeah. I have said to my family that any requests for money have to be in person <laughs>
1: that's a nice well so those are the From principles those, those equivalent <laughs> principles yeah yeah but
0: at the moment we so we're at a time when there's a lot of international discussion around ai we've got the uh government meeting at the moment uh about safety and ai and so i think what we're reading in the press is a lot of concern mm. about ai the risks around ai what could you How can you help us understand the level of that and what we should be thinking as individuals about Um, those risks um, and our reaction to them?
1: Look, I mean, with a general purpose technology, which, which AI in particular and computing in general is, you will always have opportunities for using the technology for good or ill. The concerns at the moment are that these the possibility is these AI systems will, in some sense, escape our control. That is something I think we should be attentive to. Uh, you don't have to build a fully sentient AI system to somehow put it together in such a way that is executing its directives in a way, and there are no humans in the loop. Uh, you can think of that with, 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 with debates around autonomous weaponry, you know, that there are real concerns what that would look like. What does the kill switch look like? Literally, the kill switch to to switch the systems off. So there are people we do need to worry about those issues. The more general case of um, guardrails and regulations we put around these new models about who gets access to them, how we evaluate them, legitimate questions to ask. I just think it's a matter of balancing the fact that there are really immediate deployment contexts where we need to be asking questions right now. And we are asking questions, I think, but that we need lots of energy around. How good is the decision making of these systems that are increasingly being automated? Do we as humans have a right to a human decision? Should we require it? Do we know that the data it's trained on has mm. is is representative in a meaningful sense? What does that actually mean? You know, is that culture-specific, region-specific, domain-specific? So there's a lot to go at. And I think that we do have, and we have here in Oxford with the Institute for Ethics and AI, which which I which I helped set up, is, is definitely something where we've got Really good thinking about what this space looks like. That something like, oh, we have to reduce the harms of these systems, is a fine thing to say. But if you take apart the concept of what harms mean, harms for whom, harms yes. for what, these are very complicated ideas, and people have been thinking about them for a long time in practical ethics. We've got fantastic resources to draw on where we can enrich the debate. So, yeah, we need to we need to be mindful of, and you would. In any context in which you're deploying the technology in a safety critical context, we already are aware of that, where we do these things. Um, But it's as important to be asking ourselves, where do these systems add value? Hugely beneficial to improving or optimising processes that we currently um, are involved with and new ones we can't imagine.
0: So on that note, though, um, and coming back to the university, What should we be thinking about in terms of how do we ensure that both staff and students can uh, use AI technology effectively and ethically? What do we as an institution need to be thinking about?
1: Well, I'll start from the narrow self-interested piece of my own subject area, if you like, and broaden out. I mean, one thing, one challenge, actually, for departments like my own departments of computer science is... How do we access, how do we get access to the compute resources, for example, that we need to develop some of these models? Um, Or do we need just that much power? So at the moment, there is this uh, sense that somehow might is right, that the bigger your model, the more effective it is. Mm. The bigger it is means the more compute power it needs, means the more um, processing units, means that very few organizations have access to that. Do we need a pooled access to a common research tool to do that being discussed at the moment, the idea of having that uh, as a national facility? We do for some other areas of science, we might for this, because at the moment, students are a little bit starved for the compute resource you need to push and interrogate some of these uh, more recent models. Another line of argument says, no, we can do just fine on smaller versions of these models. They act as kind of a a drosophila for, 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 for the bigger questions in these ai systems so we we make a virtue out of a necessity as we often do as academics and 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 come up with better ways of thinking about problems and challenges um, so i think it's also the case that my students also need to get healthy amounts of training around ethics around data ethics around understanding questions about the Content on which systems are being trained, or the the values that are being inherently um, designed into the system, or indeed the way in which the systems are being aligned to the values that we care about, and if you then broaden out to other disciplines um, you know th- th- there's a huge ha- appetite across many divisions, many faculties, many departments for more support and expertise around some of the modern techniques in AI, such as machine learning? Do we teach that more mm. broadly? Um, do we rely on providing high quality access to to courseware or distance learning material? Do we assemble peer group support of some sort and do that more structurally, more systematically? Because there is clearly a need for a new class of literacy in using these tools. Yeah. And then you expand further out into all aspects of the collegiate university community, the staff. Staff will be using these tools routinely. What Oxford prides itself on is this development of the life of the mind and the the critical method. We have to also use these tools with a clear-eyed sense of what their limits are as well as what their their potentialities are.
0: Yeah, you you touched on something there that um, I think is really interesting, and that is the interaction between disciplines. One of my summer readings was the ethical algorithm, which Mm. was around socially aware algorithms. But as we think about this, we need to be bringing disciplines together. And I think that's something that here at Oxford, we are very well uh, positioned to do. I agree. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. No, I I agree totally. I mean, partly that's because we also remix, not just uh, in terms of the nature of the subjects we do, but you know the college structure you know i find myself in my own college talking with people across different disciplines on a daily ba- basis the kind of social proximity that you have here this very densely connected university cutting across faculties through college it's really rich opportunity for those discussions and then in you know taking advantage of that the kind of role that you have as you work across divisions yeah i think i think because you've got so many brilliant challenge examples where the insight is as much for us as engineers or computer scientists or theorists to understand that when we talk about value alignment, when we talk about ethics of an algorithm, we don't mean some simple-minded optimization on one utility function. It's a bit more complicated than that. (laughs) There are a lot of things to take into account.
0: We're coming to an end of our time, I'm afraid. Um, But I think one of the wonderful things that you've done within your own college is to create a digital hub, bringing colleagues together um, around to be able to discuss some of these issues. What's your, um, what would you give as a vision for what we should do at the at the university more broadly, or what our colleagues within the institution can be doing mm. in that regard to take forward this agenda?
1: It kind of um, segues from the last point we were discussing in a way. One of the things that's interesting about this digital lobby, it's a physical convening space. It's, it's, it's an idea, of course, but actually it's also premised on the fact that you also have to bring people together. And we know we can do that through the agency of, of virtual teaming and all the rest of it, but actually getting people together to debate ideas turns out to be super important. And Oxford's very, very gifted and, and privileged in the sense that it has this density of forums and and places where that can happen so it's about the very act of pulling together convening through podcasts through through lectures through seminars people who have an appetite to hear from one another there's also i think within the um digital hub the notion that the way in which computational thinking and tools will change my own subject, computer science, or various areas of science, doesn't stop at those boundaries. It's as disruptive to the ways historians are thinking as it is to the way mm-hmm. that uh, sociologists are thinking, to the way in which health researchers do their work. And many of those tools and techniques are in some sense common, but they're embedding in different disciplines, gives all of us a different perspective, a different realisation of a strength or a capability for an approach we hadn't thought of.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I just have one last question for you. The pace of change over just the last six months even has been extraordinary as we've seen these tools coming forward, being used in different ways. And I think that's one of the reasons um, we're seeing a lot in the press about why we should be afraid. In terms of that pace of change, what do you think we can expect over the next 12 months? When you and I come back to to this desk for a a revisit in 12 months' time, what will we be
1: seeing and saying?
0: Are we too late at the institution to act?
1: So I think the university isn't late to the party. Um, It's is home to some of the most powerful thinking, at the fundamentals of the disciplines on which AI is built, whether that's materials science, which makes the machines run faster, through to computational methods that make them run faster and optimize faster, through to the actual applications of these techniques, to everything from health, to um, social uh, welfare, to economic manufacturing, design, we're suffused full of extraordinary research um, with students who are really, really eager to exploit this. I was at the Guildhall dinner before the Bletchley Summit, um, and there with me is one of my graduate students who's just been busy organising a generative AI conference stuffed full of other graduate students. I mean, there's huge appetite to develop and innovate not just in the staff, but in our student body too. So I think as one of the world's great universities, we will end up doing great work in AI. And a definite thing to resist is a notion that somehow we're feeder stock for the big tech corporations. This is about, as it's always been, a balance between research quality, teaching excellence, and the exploitation of these techniques. And I think we have a leadership position in that, whether it's ethics in AI, whether it's in the core technology, whether it's in the applications. And I think our voice matters. Okay. Well, it's been an absolute delight to
0: talk with you this afternoon. And I do look forward to coming back for further conversation in a year's time uh, to see what we've achieved. So thanks very much, Nigel.
1: Let's revisit. That's been great. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for listening. Please join us for future episodes where we'll continue to explore the ever-changing and fascinating world of digital Oxford.